everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. I felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Now in 2019, you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. From executive producers Simon Kinberg and Jordan Peele comes the reimagining of a worldwide phenomenon. The all-new Twilight Zone. Ah, welcome to Everything Old is New Again. This is Douglas Viviani with the rather dusk David Cohen. Dusk. <laughs> dusk. The best I could do. That's I didn't know that was an adjective. That's a new one. <laughs> it's another word or a way to describe twilight, if you will. Yeah, no, I know that. Oh, okay. So, And that's what we're focusing a smidge on here today and next week. Do you want to just focus and think about Twilight Zone has been around and is celebrating its 60th year since its original broadcast this year? Wow. I mean, that's that's amazing. And now we just heard there that there's going to be a reincarnation. Reimagining. reimagining. If I hear that word one more time, Doug, I'm telling <laughs> let's you. Let's hope it's not a reimagining. Let's hope that they stick to the original formula. Yeah. And, and prove that everything old is new again. And if you build upon the foundation of the entertainment of the past and don't lose sight of what made it successful, you'll have a great run with the brand new Twilight Zone on CBS all access. Just an example that everything old is new again and that we're on the, the right, uh, I think, wavelength here. Uh, it's been consistently on television, this Twilight Zone, for 55 years of reruns. There were two incarnations, television shows, 85, 2002. There was one movie in 83. It's been on the radio, by the way, Stacey Keach as the host since 2002. And it's honored in uh, Disney with a Twilight Zone Tower of Terror ride. Why do I say this? Why do I talk about Twilight Zone? And are we only going to be talking about Twilight Zone today? We are not, ah. because this week and next, we're going to explore all things Rod Serling, mm. creator of the Twilight Zone, which included that, but also so much more, because joining us on this journey in time is author Nicholas Parisi, who is here with us in the studio to that? talk about his book, Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, available at at uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon or your local bookstore. Well, you know, and also Nicholas serves on the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. He's also, and this will come into play in a few minutes, or maybe the next show, actually, a former staff writer and editor for a magazine we've mentioned before uh, related to our high school band, The Good Times Magazine, right. from uh, and on Long Island. Welcome, after all of that, Nick Parisi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. I'm, I'm very happy to be here, and good to see you, Dave. There we Same go. Here. We met over at the uh, Long Island Geek Convention. If you go back on our YouTube you know, version of the show, you could see on our YouTube channel the Geek Convention. And we saw Nick there promoting his book, which, uh, by the way, I have a copy here that I'm going to ask to be autographed later on. On the air, I'm saying that. He's going <laughs> to, on the air. He, I when I read you can it, ask for it. it. <laughs> What's the answer? Oh, he said, so now you have it. We'll be walking away with an autograph. I'm happy about that. Rod Serling is life, work, and imagination. This is a tome. This is a it is a tome. This is five. Kill somebody with that book. <laughs> five hundred fifty pages or so. But I'm telling you, you're not going to want to put this thing down. This is one of these books that is so interesting. 
because you know Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone, but maybe if you're not a huge nut about entertainment like all of us in this room, you may not know that he was involved in lots of other things. Sure. Further, you're going to hear behind-the-scenes stories about what went on. But before we go to anything else... Yeah, are we going to let, let Nick talk? Yeah, or let's, let's let Nick say something. Okay. Tell us... Uh, for those who don't know or aren't initiated, who's Rod Serling and why should we care? Well, Rod Serling, Doug, thank you, is uh, he was clearly the most prestigious and most honored writer in television history before the Twilight Zone. Before the Twilight Zone ever aired, Rod Serling was the top of the heap as far as television writers went. Uh, he had just won three consecutive Emmy Awards in 1955, 56, and 57, and the Twilight Zone debuted in 1959. So he was the most uh, recognizable, the most outspoken, the most honored and probably the most prolific writer in television history. He wrote over 250 scripts that were produced for television or radio and, and feature films. And, of course, in the middle of this career, and it's remarkable how close to the exact middle of his career it was, he created probably the most influential television series of all time in The Twilight Zone. So it's an incredible career that he had, particularly in television. And I don't think there's any other television writer whose career can quite be measured in the same way that Rod Serling's can. It's really a phenomenal uh, body of work. Now, if you were to ask, because you've gone through, let's be clear, before I even ask this question, you've gone through a lot of unpublished manuscripts, unpublished writings. Tell us what you did to, to research this book. Yes, well, well, the book took about four years of research and writing and what I did was the you know one thing that uh, someone like me had an advantage uh, uh, you know in regards to is that Rod Serling left behind an incredible amount of material he left behind this incredible paper trail that you can you can actually go through uh, the primary archive of Serling material is in Wisconsin it's the it's at the Madison State Historical Society and Serling donated about 81 boxes of material to the Historical Society and you can go there you can go there and go through all of it and it includes produced uh, manuscripts, unproduced manuscripts. It includes correspondence, contracts, letters, uh, you know, all sorts of miscellaneous. They just recently digitized a 20,000 hours, I think, of, of, of dictabelt recordings that Rod Sterling had, had uh, mm. you know, recorded throughout his career. So it's an amazing archive of stuff. And then there are other archives. I went to that one. I went to the archive at UCLA uh, when Rod was living in, in, you know, in Hollywood, basically. He donated a bunch of stuff to UCLA, so there's a bunch of stuff there. Uh, when he was teaching at Ithaca College, he donated a bunch of stuff to Ithaca College. So those were the three main archives that I went through. And then on top of that, I went to his uh, his alma mater, you know, um, Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and I found some really really interesting stuff about his uh, college career there that I had never seen published anywhere else. So I did go through, yeah, absolutely everything that I could get a hold of, and um, and this is it. This and is what, that's what why the this book was. has all of you know is so detailed. It has I should say all, but it has a peek into all of those sources here, which is very cool. For example, when uh, he was speaking, and well, Jumping ahead a little bit, but when we were speaking about his second or other series, The Night Gallery, later on, uh, he was a little upset because they weren't using all of the scripts and all that. There's a note there exactly what he wrote to the, uh, I guess you'd say, the producers and, and or the, the TV station, whatever it was, and said, listen, guys, if you don't want me to write anymore, that's fine, man, because you're turning down a lot of my scripts. I'll just do the narration. That's cool. And he, they said, no, we still want four more scripts from you. But I'm saying yeah. something little like that. 
that's in that book. It's just a little piece of it. Like it's amazing that all that stuff is in this book to hear that. Yeah, because Rod Serling kept all that stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> he he was the type of guy. He he responded to every fan letter he ever received. I think he wow. really did. He he and he kept it. He kept everything. He kept every fan letter he ever got and he responded personally. I mean, personally signed letters that he sent to people. If you wrote to Rod Serling to uh, to bash him about something, he'd be more more uh, apt to respond to you. I mean, that's just the way he was. He would say he, he would thank you for it. He would say you know thank you for your your thoughtful letter if it was a thoughtful letter and <laughs> and respond to whatever your criticism was. And so it, yeah, he seemed to keep his ego in check. I'm going to say because he was very. If you see even on YouTube, there's a lot of interviews. He always knows to take the names of the people that he's talking to when he's in a group. One of them with like five different students. He knows everyone's name and he'll use their names all the time when they uh, respond to him. In, in in UCLA, he's doing a lecture and somebody mistakes him or mistakes an episode that he wrote for someone else. Whatever it might be, he's very self. Uh, def- def- what would you say? Self-affecting. He he's not one that's uh, you know going to be a pushover either. If he didn't like an actor or didn't like something that was going on, right? The general public, he'll tell you that, right? I mean, he was pretty cool that way. Oh, yeah. He was, he, from all, you know, I wish I could have met him. I was five years old when he died, you know, so, but from all uh, indications, uh, he was an incredibly personable guy. He was, he liked people, you know, so, so exactly what you said, when he was talking to people, he would, he would look at them in the eye and, 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 and listen to what they said. And he was never the type of guy to, you know, to take the air of a star and, you know, uh, some kind of an attitude or something. He he really did did relish the interaction with students if he was teaching or with the people in the audience if he was giving a lecture. Exactly. And just to give a little peek into what we were talking about in the future, see if you remember this episode. This is flight number 914 from Earth to our planet. We will be taking off in three minutes. Mr. Chambers, don't get on that ship. The rest of the book, to serve men... It's a cookbook. One of the most memorable Rod Sterling episodes. I hate to cut everybody short here, but we're up against the, 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 the wall of commercials here. We'll be back right after this and everything old is new again with Nick Parisi. And we're going to dive into lots of things, but the next section, let's, ta- let's talk a little Twilight Zone. And, and then we'll talk about Rod Sterling's Life, Work, and Imagination, a book by Nick Parisi. Everything old is new again. We'll be back right after this. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which... You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Ah, this stop right here is Willoughby. No, it's not the next stop, Willoughby. (laughs) This is Everything Old is New Again, David Cohen. Doug Viviani doing a show about Rod Serling. Who doesn't do a Rod Serling imitation, by the Everybody way? Everybody does. <laughs> even if even if you've never seen him, you know the imitation, and you can imitate the imitation. I remember Dan Aykroyd's on Saturday Night Live. Remember that sure, one? Sure, yeah. It was great. Uh, we're here with Nicholas Parisi, who is the author of a great book. You've got to get into reading this. It's just released on Amazon. Rod Serling, His Life, 
work and imagination. You're going to learn about the Twilight Zone, yes, but you'll learn about a lot more, and we're going to get into all that in the next two shows. Right now, let's hear from Rod Serling himself here and speak about what are the two best Twilight Zone shows in his mind. I thought the two best shows we did, one I wrote, one I didn't write. One was an original by Dick Matheson called The Invaders with Agnes Moorhead, which was in a sense pure science fiction with a very O. Henry-ish twist. And the other was an adaptation of mine, of, of a Lucille Fletcher's a short story called Time Enough at Last, about a myopic bank teller who, at the end at the end of the world, breaks his glasses just when he's able to read all that he's ever wanted to read, which was sheer, pure, beautiful irony. So here he is on a, an interview, and he did lots of nice interviews, and, and very thoughtful individual. Nicholas, did you hear some of these interviews in your oh, research, uh, or what? Absolutely, every one of them, yes. Uh, okay. yes and I had uh, plenty that you are not going to find on, on YouTube right. also, yeah. <laughs> no, it's interesting that to hear the writer of an iconic show be so honest as to say, I liked these two, the, and of course he has some mm-hmm. others, but these two the best, like, uh, ask Roddenberry what's his best Star Trek, he's not going to tell you. Well, Rod Sterling, for those who don't know, he was his own worst critic, he was his own harshest critic, he was incredibly critical of his own work uh, throughout his career, before and after The Twilight Zone Enduring, so he was absolutely going to give you an honest answer about things. I mean, at one point uh, in the Twilight Zone's run, he said he summed up the series as being a third of them were shows I could be proud of, a third of them were passable, and a third of them were dogs. Hmm. Uh, that was his estimation, and I think he's way off on the third being dogs. Uh, right. I think he's probably right about the third, a third of them being classics, but way more of them are perfectly fine good shows not dogs you know so yeah. now he mentioned yeah. O. Henry was he a fan of O. Henry did he talk about him at all because there are some O. Henry type of things that he did with these endings sometimes uh, yes he, he was uh, yeah I'm certain he was a fan because because he did mention the O. Henry-esque twist uh, often enough to, to know that he was you know giving homage to, to the, that type of a, a writer well let's uh, let's yes. explain who because yeah a lot of our listeners might not know O. Henry he's a writer from the, back in the day and, and, and had twist endings that were very that, thoughtful. Known for that type like, of for ending, example, yes. The Honeymooners did that one show where, which is a twist on the O. Henry, where there was a Christmas show where they're searching, searching and, you know, for presents, and, and Ralph gives up his bowling ball, and Alice in turn to buy get money to buy Alice a gift, and meanwhile, Alice turned, buy, bought him a bowling ball bag or a bowling bag uh, ball. A bowling bag ball. <laughs> uh, of course, that wasn't the O. Henry story. There's another, but, but, but that is the gift of the Magi, right. and to bring it around, Rod Serling actually wrote an adaptation of the gift of the Magi. Um, in in the late '60s, actually after the Twilight Zone, I, I honestly don't know exactly what it was written for, but it never was produced. Uh, it was. Oh, that would yeah, I would yeah. love to have seen that. Yeah. So then, obviously, he certainly yeah, so was certainly aware was of O. Henry, yes, yes. and yeah, that just goes to show you a little bit. I'm mean, not, to, but everything old is new again. Like certainly, I would love to have asked him. Did you have in mind at least the foundation of what O. Henry did? 1800s, I, think, I believe so. That he did when you were, at, would you have been influenced by that thought process or the one? Books that you stories you've read of that author. I don't know if we have. The I answer think that, to that was a. I think it was a conscious decision. Maybe not. I mean, to, the twist was a conscious decision. Right. Uh, you know, he 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 had written twist endings before the Twilight Zone. Um, we can get into that. Yes. But but yes. Yeah, so he definitely had that particular. In mind. Let's just refresh our memory now as to the invaders. Agnes Moorhead, by the way, was uh, an actress with Orson Welles in the thirties. Was, she was in Citizen Kane as Orson Welles' character's mom. Later, she was bewitched in Bewitched as Samantha's mother in the sixties. And here she is in the invaders. Let's see if you remember this. Come in central control. The ship's destroyed. Incredible race of giants here. Too powerful. Stay away. What's the twist there, Nicholas Parisi? 
the twist is that we believe that this woman is on Earth being attacked by aliens, and it turns out that she's on another planet being attacked by Earth astronauts. <laughs> and destroys uh, the, the and, ship. And, and, and destroys the ship and everything else, yes. Uh, now, is there anything behind the scenes that, that's in the book or any discussions that, that, you know, his thought process in presenting this? That particular episode, no. As he mentioned, Richard Matheson right. had written that one, and I believe he just uh, took it, you know, basically uh, there was... You know, Rod Serling very rarely changed anything that those writers wrote. I mean, a, not a word, you know, so I'm sure he just accepted that script as as it was written. Now, and, was and he the one in this show, he would be the first what they call showrunner these days, right? Exactly, That's the famous yes. term now. Right. Um, would he have been the one that hired either all or some of these writers? Absolutely. He was involved in every aspect of The Twilight Zone, and he hired Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont from the get-go, and George Clayton Johnson kind of came along with them. It was right. almost a, almost a tag-along. Um, but uh, yeah, so he hired them explicitly right from the beginning. How did he know? Uh, he obviously knew them prior. Right? He, he, well, yes. The story is, and I, I do believe this, that Ray Bradbury actually suggested them to him, and he invited them to the screening of the pilot. He had written the pilot, Where Is Everybody?, and he invited them to it, and they talked afterward and they they hit it off and he just sensed that they were good for the show and it turned out brilliant to be a brilliant decision and how was he a manager of them though you said he, he said to them go ahead write give me script did he ever turn them down that he just edit them changing in a word? Yeah, what, yeah i, I gotta tell you if, as far as i can tell he never turned down a script from either of those those guys and both of them both Beaumont particularly was amazed that the shows were produced as he wrote them without a word being hmm. changed uh it was so unheard of in television especially you know the story that charles Beaumont tells is that when he first turned when he turned in his first script which was perchance to dream uh, an episode about a man who is uh, having a nightmare he has a heart condition he's having a, a dream about being on a roller coaster and he can't take it because his heart his heart is going to give out on him and Serling told him go ahead write the story however you see it you know don't worry about the little old lady in Dubuque you know she'll get it don't worry about her and Beaumont says you know he wrote the script thinking oh this has got to be changed you know they're never going to accept it like this and it was aired verbatim you know word for word not a mm -hmm. word changed so that's that's how he dealt with those writers and, well, and that's what he always wanted from his I'm going to say bosses but sponsors like he didn't want to he was always fighting with the sponsors to not put the can of coke in the back but also to be able to say what he wanted to say and I guess that's part of the reason why I created the show. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. To have that freedom. Okay. So now uh, let's take a look at what was the other one was mentioned was Time Enough at Last. If you haven't seen this one, you gotta, I gotta ruin the ah, end. Time this. Enough at Last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> The best laid plans of mice and men. There you go. And that's Burgess Meredith, of course, from Batman the Penguin, from Rocky, Mickey the Trainer, and many others. That was one of, of course, his most favorite uh, presentations. Yes, I mean we could do a whole show on on yeah. on time enough at last. Mm -hmm. It's certainly one of my favorites, and and it was, you know, I, I I would I would caution you about that particular clip where he says this was this and Invaders were his two favorites. I mean it's kind of like when you you ask John Lennon what his favorite Beatles song was, and if you don't like his answer, right. wait till tomorrow and ask him again. You know, so he always had different favorites, but this was certainly one of them. And it's uh, yeah, that ending. I mean I get chills just from hearing a little glimpse, you know, a clip of it there. I mean yeah. Burgess Meredith is tremendous in it, and it's just the ending 
ending just punches you in the gut. It really is. A, it's exactly a, a harrowing and, ending. And I did go through a number of interviews, and there was another interview he listed like five shows. Yeah, I think it was in LA, Los Angeles, UCLA. So you're right about that. But uh, just for kicks, uh, let's have a little bit of a quiz here. I've got a couple seconds left. I have four shows. You're going to hear David Cohen is going to go up against Nicholas Parisi, the uh, David versus Goliath here, and we're going to see. There's a compilation of. Four clips of four shows. Name either the title, the star, or the ending. Okay, okay you ready? Yeah. Yes. Won't somebody take a lamp or a bottle or something and end this? You're a very bad man. He was a bad man. And you mustn't think bad thoughts about me either. Or I'll do the same thing to you. What does it say, Archie? What did he write? Why didn't he say something? I knew I would not be able to keep my part of the bottom. So one year ago, I had the nerves to my vocal cords severed. Now, you see, I hope, why you must say nothing of what you've seen and heard here. But isn't it possible you might have made a mistake? No, think of the peace of the world these last five years. Let us begin to build the statue again. I'm the god of Donnerstein! What do you got? Tiny little man. Why you crushed to death? There you go. Just some random ones. David Cohen's lost a little bit there. Sorry about that, Mr. Cohen. I'll give you the first, uh, and I will give you a give a hint. The first one. There you were four. Yeah, I don't need a hint for the first, the first one. Yes, I knew that right away. Which is that was wish him into the cornfield. Bill Moomy and and uh, yeah, the kid. It's a good life, right? And they did it's that one life, yeah. uh, again in the movie, actually, right, Nicholas? Yes, they did. All right. How about uh, David? The second one. Did you, you at least recognize the voice of? Somebody there you may recognize from Lost in Space. No, I, I w- no, I, did, well, yeah, I mean, Mr. Smith, Doctor. All right, so there Dr. you go, Smith, one of the actors. But I, I remember the episode, but I don't, <laughs> I don't remember the name of the Nicholas. episode. The episode is called The Silence. And that's a great one. He loves really that one, is. too. He mentioned yeah. that one a number of times about uh, making the bet and then uh, the yeah. cuts his vocal cords so yeah. he can win the bet. But meanwhile, the that twist so is cool. the guy that made the bet doesn't have the money to pay him off. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and then, all right, David, the third one. It's about a devil. Remember this? Yeah. Oh, wait. About the devil? Yeah. Because I couldn't tell from the John Carradine's quotes. got the devil locked up and some visitor comes and doesn't believe Carradine and is convinced by the devil to release him from jail. And what happens, Nicholas, after that? He turns out to be, be right. It was the devil and he spends the rest of his life trying to recapture him. Pretty it's cool. cool. I couldn't, yeah, I, I do remember That's that. such an underrated episode, I, I think. It was probably my favorite for years and years. Right now, I'd probably put it at number two. <laughs> What's oh, number wow. one? Wow. Walking Distance. Oh, okay. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and the last one is, he, they mentioned the name at the end of the episode. Yeah, no. Little uh-uh. People, which is, again, one of these where, where you visit a planet and people are bigger or smaller. What happens there, Nicholas? Well, an astronaut gets some megalomaniacal tendencies about these little people being their god, and then, of course, some giants show up and show them who's boss. Exactly. <laughs> We'll be back on Everything Old is New again. We'll continue all things, let's say, Rod Serling. And we're going to have a great time here with Nicholas Parisi, the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, available everywhere. Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything Old is New Again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. This is the prize-winning screenplay of Requiem for a Heavyweight by the famous writer Rod Serling. Within these pages is a gallery of some of the most provocative characters ever conceived. From the alleys and asphalt of New York City, from the fiery brilliance of four great stars, comes a motion picture of deep insight and crashing impact. Not a great promo, David Cohen. I don't know if you're that 
caught your attention. Or well, not. those are, those promos back then. <laughs> By the time they got around to telling you what they were promoting, it's like you were half asleep. <laughs> Speaking of which, we hear on everything. Starring some of the famous blah, blah, blah. It's like, get to the point. No excitement. That was a promo for Requiem for a Heavyweight, which was on uh, TV, uh, TV with Playhouse 90 in 1956. Later on in the movie theaters with Anthony Quinn, Jackie Gleason, Mickey Rooney, Julie Harris in 62. We're here with Nicholas Parisi, the author of Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination, available at uh, Amazon.com for sure. Or go to Barnes & Noble, pick it up right now. Why not? Matter of fact, while the, our radio show is on, walk into Barnes & Noble, nice and loud, coming out of your out of your pocket, let's say, from and, and promote our show as well, because this is well worth it. Because we're talking all things Rod Serling. That is a work that I think is overlooked these days. You can find Requiem for a Heavyweight on YouTube and both versions. But I think it's very interesting that we spoke a little bit before that he had, Rod Serling had no problem calling people out, and he did not like the version that you usually see if you're going to pull this up, which is the Jackie Gleason version, which starred Anthony Quinn, because he says it was badly directed, poorly performed, except for Mickey Rooney and Jackie Gleason. I thought Tony Quinn was not right for it. He liked Jack Palance, and gave, who gave it considerably more dignity in the live version than Tony Quinn did. And that hmm. is a direct quote right out of the book, Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination. Nicholas, what's what's that about? Yeah. He, Requiem for a Heavyweight, I think, was, you know, we, we talked about whether what his favorite Twilight Zone episodes were before, but Requiem for a Heavyweight, I think, was is without question Rod Serling's favorite piece of work that he did uh, he just he loved the script and he loved the the original Playhouse 90 performance with with good reason uh, it really is a brilliant script and it's a brilliant it was a brilliant performance by Jack Palance but yes his affection for it did not quite extend to the movie and I, I tend to agree with him I think that that Tony Quinn was just wrong for the part it was in and he was was the weak link in that movie and when you're the star in the weak you're the weak link of the movie it kind of you know the, the movie falls apart around it but but having said that I, I do like the, the feature film version as well I like the TV version better, but I think the feature film has a lot of things going for it as well. It's just not quite as effective as, as the TV version. I, I can see that, but I still think it's it's worthwhile. Did, uh, is yeah. the TV version available yes. to see? Yes. It's, uh, YouTube has it, and in fact, they restored it. So look for Playhouse 90, Requiem for a Heavyweight. It'll come right up. I do, do you the remember day. they played that in high school? Do you do remember? You in school, they played Which it was version? in the auditorium. I think it was Jack Palance. I remember him in it. In in the high school auditorium, they I had that. Not and you and I, that. you and I went to to see it. Yeah, and what we think? We oh, must yeah, have it was loved great. It. Yeah, sure. I, I, <laughs> wow. How about that for a problem? Uh, my memory, but I always have loved it. Maybe that's where it came from. Uh, I, and and there were some Rod Serling's where he talked about did box boxers. One with a mechanical boxer, another one with a uh, a, a gentleman that was retiring as a boxer, and right. a little boy was praying for him. So he had an affinity for boxing unto itself. He did. He he did some boxing himself when he was in the military. He was a you know a, a featherweight boxer, and he and he and he did pretty well actually. And he always had a uh, an affection for boxers because he felt that they were perfect vehicles to tell this type of story about anybody who has dedicated their life to one particular pursuit and then they get to the point where they just can't do that anymore and now what do they do? Who right. are they at that point? So he found a, a, a way to, to tell these stories through those particular characters. And a lot of them have a lot of heart. Yes. A lot of episodes do, of course. But the episodes with with the uh, boxes, see, you, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed to 
put forward, uh, you know, a, a present presentation that these uh, people are perfect for to show uh, a sad, but also maybe a, a side of their life, but also a turnaround with something could change and make things better for them. Yes, and 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 he did like the dichotomy, the you know the the you know the fact that you're in this brutal sport and yet you have a gentleness to you and right. and, and, and an inner, inner dignity uh, that he could show through those characters. That's a great way to put it. That's why you're the author. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Let's take a listen to Rod Serling on Dennis Hopper. I thought this was very interesting and very straightforward. I remember the show vividly. It was called He's Alive. No, I thought it was one of the best written scripts completely pissed away by the performance of Dennis Hopper. I must tell you this in utter frankness, and I'll say it to Mr. Hopper as well. It was a most uncontrolled, undisciplined performance, which took considerably more thespic talent than the young man had at the time. It needed a very restrained performance, and Dennis started to cry in real one. And there was simply emotionally no place to go. So he was, I mean... What, that, what was he talking about? He was talking about an episode called He's Alive. It was one of the hour-long uh, episodes of the fourth season uh, that's, that Rod particularly liked. And yeah, he did not he like the script. He didn't like uh, Dennis Hopper's performance, obviously. I think it was something with, the, with Hitler uh, yes, feeding words into yeah, this character. It's, it's about a, a neo-Nazi rabble-rouser who is becoming better at his craft so to speak because he's taking kind of direction from this ghost-like figure in the shadows and you find out that the ghost-like sh figure in the shadows is the ghost of Adolf Hitler who's giving him these you know pep talks on how to how to you know do this but if you look at it we'll talk about the actors in, in, t in next week's show that he worked with but um, I can't help but say you know Dennis Hopper is very re revered these days and he's done lots of movies and Apocalypse Now and so forth but you know not everybody's perfect but he wasn't afraid to say it right out and I think he was right about what do we know but you know what do I know? But he was right about what I heard. I've heard him say about most actors, positive and negative. He seemed to be in tune, not only as a writer, but as a a larger figure, as a as a I guess you're going to say a critic, but as someone that's attuned to acting. Sure, and especially when we're talking about the Twilight Zone as a producer, you know, because right. he was the one who hired Dennis Hopper. I'm sure. Well, you know, by there's a whole other story. But in the fourth season, he wasn't quite as involved in the series as he had been. But um, but yeah, so so he saw him in that in that frame of mind also. Now he also was involved. With with writing the screenplay for someone else's work, but it was very uh, interesting, the dialogue that he is able to present in something called Seven Days in May, which starred Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Frederick March in 1964. Listen to a little bit about this, and again, this is something that you really should uh, listen to. It's even relevant to this day, I think. This is the astounding story of a military plot to overthrow the government of the United States. Are you sufficiently up on your Bibles to know who Judas was? Yes, I know who Judas was. He was a man I worked for and admired until he disgraced the four stars on his uniform. Now, uh, the New York Times said about that, in a sense, Rod Serling's excellent screenplay is a hymn to American democracy. It mixes inspiration with excitement, confidence, and fear, and concludes that we the people should be vigilant but not afraid. Now, he won a Writer's Guild Award for that. Uh, you tell me, this is something that I think is overlooked these days, no? It is, it is. And when we're talking about Rod Serling, again, the interesting thing just about his body of work in its totality is... Is that he is so tied to the Twilight Zone that everything else is overlooked. You know, uh, he's one of these people who uh, he. There are people who will be amazed that he wrote anything other than the Twilight Zone. So, so that's that's incredible. And with Seven Days in May in particular, yeah, this is one that does not deserve to be overlooked. This is this is a classic film, a great film. And the amazing thing to me about Seven Days in May, about the screenplay, is that when Rod Serling wrote this, uh, you know, it was after the third season of the Twilight Zone, and the Twilight Zone was not immediately 
immediately renewed for the fourth season. And he went back to Antioch College in Yellow Springs. He, so he wanted to take a break. He took a sabbatical and he went to teach. He went to t- uh, teach at, at Antioch. And you know, while he was there, oh, by the way, he cranked out the screenplay for seven <laughs> days in May. The, easily the finest screenplay of his career. So it's it's an amazing testament to just his, his work ethic and just how productive he was. Exactly. And he wasn't immune to what was going on around him. He knew all about what was happening in the various fields of especially science fiction, including Star Trek. Star Trek, I thought, was again a very inconsistent show, which at times sparkled with true ingenuity and pure science fiction approaches, and other times was more carnival-like and very much more the creature of television than the creature of a legitimate literary form. So, and I don't disagree with that. The third season of Star Trek was very was poor, and he was talking about the the project in general. Uh, now, uh, again, he's talking about someone else's work. Uh, Rod, Sir, uh, I mean, sorry, Gene Roddenberry was respected in the time. He didn't have a, a, a problem doing that. Rod Serling, when he passed away, Gene Roddenberry in California uh, did a eulogy for Rod Serling and said, no one uh, could know Serling or view or read his work without recognizing his deep affection for humanity, his his enthusiastic curiosity about us, and his determination to enlarge our horizons by giving us a better understanding of ourselves. So even though he had criticism of fellow uh, people in the industry, they certainly respected what he had to say. And by yeah. the way, I get all this from this book. You need to know that. <laughs> well, I mean, he wasn't going to trash him at his eulogy. I mean, well, why I was he asking? Why did he even do it? If someone trashes you, why would you do the eulogy if you didn't care about him? They were friends. They were friends. He and he and Roddenberry and uh, and. And we should point out that directly before that quote that you gave, he was Serling was trashing his own show because he was he was saying that the Twilight Zone was a mixed bag and it was sometimes it was great, sometimes it wasn't. So he said, "Yeah, Star Trek, same thing. It was a mixed bag. Sometimes it was great, sometimes it wasn't." So he would, he would trash himself and he would he would trash other people. So I think the message: it's nothing wrong with being honest exactly. when it's your exactly. straight opinion. And I'm getting the the impression, Nick, that that if Rod was alive today and in tune with 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 culture and what's what's happening, he'd be big on Twitter and I mean. He would not be afraid to speak his mind. Oh, well, no. Rod Sterling was never afraid to speak his mind. I mean, he, he thought it was his obligation to speak his mind, especially as an artist, but even more so, more basically as a citizen. Uh, he, th- he thought, you if you ta- told him, you know, don't talk about politics or religion, he would say, you're a fool. Yeah, of course I'm going to talk about politics or religion. It's what's important. I'm going to speak my mind. If you want to listen to it, that's fine, but I'm not. I'm going to speak my mind. Uh, that's what he was all about. We're going to continue speaking our mind and all things Rod Sterling right after this and everything old do again. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. I'm not a writer, but I've got this idea. And if you could just write it. Well, that's not the key question. The key question is, can you sit down and write it? And then, of course, they're hung up by style and technique, which is hardly of the essence. It's story that counts. It's heart. It's feeling. It's reality. It's the capacity for the printed word or the spoken word to move you. These are the key things. Oh, that's Rod Serling himself talking about people coming up to him and saying, I got a great idea. Could you just write it for me? Like, that's, that's, yeah. that's not, we all have great ideas. He, what he's saying, I think, is pretty significant is, go ahead and write it. Nick Parisi is here with us, and uh, he's written Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, a great, great book. Uh, Nicholas, what, um, what do you take away from the, that comment? Well, that is, yeah, that you you put it perfectly. Is that that's one of the writers, uh, you know, one of the dreaded, you know, 
things that writers get approached with all the time because people who don't write think that, you know, the idea is the big thing. Like, oh, I got this great idea. Well, writers have ideas constantly. Writers get ideas all day long. They do not need your ideas. <laughs> the hard thing is sitting down and putting it on paper. I mean, Rod Serling, I think in that same quote, he says, the hardest thing, the easiest thing in the world to do is, is to get an idea. The hardest thing to do is to put it down on paper. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's what he was talking about. Right. He says something like, it wasn't his quote, but he loves the idea of somebody who says, like, it's not, writing's not difficult. I go into my office, I put, back in the day, put paper into the typewriter, and I bleed. <laughs> and and uh, that's part of it. Uh, I think that he also was very prophetic at times. He really knew science fiction and he knew literature. He knew, of course, the field that he was in. It wasn't uh, a mistake. But listen to what he has to say about a young, uh, well, let's leave it a secret and see who he, who can think about who is he talking about here and this this old saw of science fiction appealing only to a small coterie of intellectuals or non-intellectuals whichever the case may be is simply phony because 2001 is a case in point one of the big grocers at metro released this this rather obscure film shot by a kid i think who originally went to ucla equinox thx thx big big box office smash very, very successful film. David Cohen, do you know who he was talking about? THX 1138 is the movie. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't. Kind of looks like you a little there bit. There you go. Yeah, with the beard. Drum roll. Star Wars creator himself, George, George Lucas. Lucas really. So in 72, he's at a lecture in, I think, UCLA, and he's bringing this up. Nicholas. Yeah, I'm glad you played that, because I was impressed by that as well. I, I didn't get to quote that in the book, but yes, I mean, he, he recognized something in George Lucas right from the beginning. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it's unbelievable. So let, let's turn a little bit towards writing, I and mean, he recognized the, the creation of... of great writing he loved literature he i think you could say that he wanted to present literature if this makes sense on television yeah, I think that's exactly uh, how I would put it. In fact, you know, uh, The Twilight Zone, again, particularly, I mean, when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I began watching The Twilight Zone when I was nine or ten years old. And even at that age, one of the things that appealed to me, one of the things that drew me into the show was the language, just the way the language was used. And I may not have known the word at the time, but the word was literary. It was a literary show. That's It was just so well written. And these people spoke in ways that you just didn't hear on other television shows. And so Rod Sterling was all about that. He was about uh, about the, the 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 language, and you could hear it when he speaks. I mean, Rod Serling was a, a, such an incredibly well-spoken man uh, because he was that thoughtful and he was that careful about using the language. And I hate to say this, when you listen to him speaking on YouTube all over the place, right? And then you listen to, I don't want you to use names, but you use some writers of television today as they're presenting, if they even do it, by the way. Most of them you don't even hear from the writers. We've had them on, on this show, Kevin Burns, who you know is prolific and is well-spoken, but there's some others that, that aren't so much so. And I think it's interesting how, I, to me, it stood out like, wow, this is what we need to hear more of from all writers. Yeah, just so articulate and so so able to uh, you know to give the essence of what uh, you know what the the art of writing is. Or how about what is the obligation of a writer? The principal obligation you have as the writer is to go to a climax which interests and excites and and if it doesn't satisfy, at least makes an audience sit up and take notice of it. It must also be valid. What does that mean? Must be valid. Something the characters would. Uh, 
would do within their characteristics when faced with an unusual circumstance? Yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about there. He's talking about not having an ending that is contrary to what you had just developed over the course of a half an hour or an hour or whatever it may be. Um, you can have a twist ending, but if you have a twist ending that doesn't that doesn't agree with what had come before, it's not going to work. It has to be valid in terms of in terms of the character. And and we try to be creative. Sometimes we do characters, we do different things, quizzes, whatever. On this show, we try to be creative. Um, I don't know if this will ring a bell for us or not, but let's hear what he has to say about creativity itself. Creativity is an altogether personal thing. It's an art that cannot be taught normally. It's a demanding, frustrating, challenging facet of the human experience. The instinct of creativity must be followed by the act, the physical act of putting it down for a sense of permanence. Well, it doesn't make it any sense if you're creative in your own mind and you don't tell anybody the joke, right? Does that make sense? It does. Look, it does I just told sense. myself a really funny joke, but it doesn't mean anything because I didn't express it it's out It's only loud. funny to you because you didn't tell it to us, right? right? But David Cohen, I mean, you know, does that speak to you at all with respect to, you know, being creative? Because you're a very, I think, creative individual. Um, well, thank you, David. Yeah, so well, does that speak to you or no? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely does. I think sometimes you're afraid as an artist to be bold or to do something maybe outside your comfort zone because you're afraid of, of the reaction to it and, and the criticism that might might happen. Um, but, you know, I think a true artist has to break through that barrier and just express whatever they feel is inside them. And, and however it spills out, it, that, that's what it is, and that's you. And Nicholas Parisi, author of Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination, um, did you or do you think that the three Emmys that he won before starting the Twilight Zone may have given him the confidence to fight for these scripts as he wanted them written? Or was it just in his personality from day one when he lived and grew up in Binghamton? N n yes and no. Uh, I think I think the first part of it is absolutely correct. Like, not just winning the three Emmys, but but just developing the prestige and the, the stature where he could say, okay, now I'm going to do what I really want to do. And you're not going to be able to tell me, you know, so, so much, you know, what, what I should do because I have the name now and I have the, the success and I can do this. So uh, it definitely gave, it also gave him the financial freedom too. He didn't have to worry about losing, you know, he, he was already a well-off well guy at that point. Uh, so, so he could take some risks and he, so he was going to address, you know, the, issues like prejudice and if they fought him on it yeah he'd fight back he'd probably lose but he would fight back and he would do that but the instinct to do that was with him right from the beginning it's just that you know he really couldn't do it uh, to this to this level until he got to that level of, of fame right but he had, the, he had the gravitas to exactly make that part of his life let's say and his life's work from Twilight Zone on if you will maybe yes. even a little before so let's talk about the soul you talk about social issues what does he have to say about writing about social issues what are you dealing with now in terms of plot points. The world and everything in it, hunger, poverty, the anguish of the human race, of course you're going to over-concern yourself with issues. It's right that you should do so this year, next year, but not three years from now. Leave that soapbox behind. Carry with you at all times your sense of caring and your concern, but put it into the mouths of flesh and blood people. Nicholas, what, uh, what is he uh, speaking of here? 
Well, the first the first point I would I would point out is that he's speaking to a college class there. So he was teaching he was teaching writing to a college course. So what he was saying to them is, yeah, you can be that way now. You're in college and next year, but once you get out of here, leave that behind and start to write real flesh and blood people who can who can put forth these ideas. So so again, Rod Sterling believed that if you're going to write, you have to write about something. You have to write about issues, and it didn't have to be the issues that he was concerned about, and it didn't have to be from the same point of view that he was would take. He just believed that one way or the other, you should be writing about something, and you know you want to make it entertaining, and you want to put it into characters that people can care about, but it should still say something. So he's telling these college kids, yeah, you're concerned. I mean, this was during the Vietnam War. He's talking to these, to these college kids. So listen, you're concerned about pollution. You're concerned about prejudice. You're concerned about war, and you're going to write about these things. Do it, but make sure that you do it believably with believable characters. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and I also want to ask you, though, along the lines, I don't know that he's ever wrote anything uh, that didn't have a point of view of meaning, whether it be a morality play, whether it be just a word, whether it be a, something with social meaning, or there's something that, that was one of his common themes. Do you think that may be the reason or one of the reasons for his success in that he wasn't a writer that was going to write I Dream of Genie and uh, if that, I don't mean to pick on you know but you know it's just a fluff piece everything he if he wrote I Dream of Genie he would write why is Genie not free I would have like loved that. to have yeah. seen him write an episode of <laughs> I Dream of Genie that would have been Cool. It would be great because he would he would he would bring out the social problem or not uh, you know what was going on in that arrangement and try to raise an issue right I mean he, 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 didn't he yeah just, he would almost be be he would almost be unable to avoid that <laughs> to, right. to, to doing that right. he would have to you know that's, right. that's just his and then nature. was that part of the success do you think America l- enjoyed that and and if they did uh, not why not well I think that uh, it was part of his success in terms of it built his reputation you know I mean these stories about him fighting for certain scripts like Noon on Doomsday and A Town Has Turned to Dust, they were not behind the scenes little squabbles. He he went to the media and the media covered these stories. So so the so the the population they knew about these stories and I think it just it built it built his reputation, gave him the the nickname Television's Angry Young Man. And even if he didn't get a chance to tell those stories the way he wanted to, the the, the people knew that he wanted to, you know. So right. so uh, and then again when he got to the Twilight Zone, he was able to do it in the form of allegory and and you know and that analogy. And, and we've had else. a great time here uh, with Nicholas Parisi, Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination available Amazon.com. Go to Barnes & Noble, a- a- any bookstore, you're going to see it there. It's a great book. Go to Facebook uh, and see Rod Serling Dimensions, and you can find, see the Facebook page. And the website is RodSerling.com, right? RodSerling.com. That is for the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. There we go. So we'll be back next week to talk more things Rod Serling. You're going to enjoy this. Uh, stay tuned to Everything Old is New Again. And we'll be back. Nicholas Parisi, Douglas Viviani, and David Cohen. Everything Old is New Again.